0: All right, good morning, if you have a Bible or a tablet, cell phone, papyrus. Jeremiah chapter 23, we're gonna look at verses one through eight. As I remind you, if you do have a, an electronic device, you might wanna set it to vibrate or something that won't interfere with your neighbor hearing the word of God and having a life-changing experience. One of the gals who's down at college in Southern California is visiting some Calvary's down there. And she says, she told her mom, she goes, they're just not into technology the way we are in Hanford. So I think that's kind of, you know, I think it's cool. I know you don't, but I I do. By your reaction, I could tell you could care less, just want to get into the word. I feel like relaxing for a minute, but that's okay. Let's just get into it. (laughs) Alan Redpath, how many of you know who Alan Redpath is? He's a wonderful uh, saint, he's with the Lord now, former pastor at Moody Church in Chicago. Uh, he would be 15 minutes of just introduction before he even read the text, and then you were nowhere near the message. So, <clears throat> but he was Alan Redpath and I'm not. So anyway, the topic this morning in our text, which is Jeremiah 23, one through eight, in case you forgot, the topic is that God promises Judah that in the future he will regather them as a shepherd leads sheep to their pasture. The title of our message, Pasture, Present, and Future. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we, uh, we believe that you've brought us to this place for a divine appointment. You're here, we're here. The word of God is going to be read. The Holy Spirit can take the words that are read and Some of the words that are spoken to fill it out, Lord, to minister to our hearts. Many of us, Lord, saved as adults, we know the power of the word of God. It was the power of God unto salvation as we heard the gospel and our hearts were set free by grace and we believed you unto salvation. I pray that we would have that same sense of the power of the word of God Now, later in our walk, Lord, whether we've been Christians for a day or a decade or 30 or 40 or 50 years, that we would be just as thrilled and just as excited to hear that word and that it would move us just as much. And maybe there's some here, Lord, who their hearts have been closed to you. You've been knocking on the door of their hearts, but they haven't opened so that you could come in and share a meal with them. I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, Lord, as your Holy Spirit would reveal your love and grace to them. Help us, Lord, as we go through this text. It's written for and about Judah in the 6th century BC, but it speaks to us just as clearly, just as plainly as it did then. We thank you in Jesus' name and those who agree said, it, amen. If you don't have clear directions, it's sure nice to have that GPS. Even so, I always get into trouble with the lag time. There's a lag time, you know. You're, the GPS thinks you're 500 feet behind where you really are. And so when I don't know where I'm going, I'm always into or through the intersection when the voice comes on and says, turn right now. And I can't because it's too late. Then you hear that dreaded electronic rebuke recalculating. And you know that you have failed. You have miserably failed. You're being rebuked by a machine, a mindless, faceless machine. I've been in situations where rather than giving directions, the other driver wants you to follow him. I've learned to not do this anymore. I refuse to follow anyone. And here's why. Just follow me seems easy, but the driver of the lead car turns into some kind of an animal as soon as he takes off. The very first green light he comes to, it is guaranteed to turn yellow while he has plenty of time to stop. Does he stop? No, of course not. Primal instincts learned over the centuries kick in, and he floors it through the yellow light, leaving you to either run the red light or stop. And you're looking, you don't even see his eyes in the rearview mirror looking back. You know how you can tell if somebody's looking back? He's just gone on his way to his destination. Does he slow down or pull over so you can catch up? Of course not. Now, how far ahead can you see before it's too late? And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's not good, this following. Now, our text is about following. It's a different kind of following. God presents himself to Judah as their shepherd. As his sheep, they ought to have heard his voice and followed him. That's what sheep do. They did not, and they were thus being scattered. Not to worry, he would regather them and bring them into his pasture. As Christians, we know Jesus as our shepherd. In the Gospel of John, he calls himself the Good Shepherd and then says, We, his sheep, hear his voice and we follow him. Well, we should follow him, but we sometimes don't. We hear him, but for a million different reasons, we lag behind or we go in some contrary direction of our own choosing. It's too bad because the pasture of the Lord is wonderful. His pasture is the always greener grass. Our theme is gonna be the wonderful, rich, filling, and sustaining pasture that Jesus both desires and designs for his sheep. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus is the shepherd whose desire is to provide abundant pasture. And number two, Jesus is the shepherd whose design is to produce ultimate pasture. First of all, let's look at the abundant pasture that he desires for us. I don't think anybody knows how many metaphors, similes, types, and illustrations God gives us in the Bible by which to describe and discuss his relationship with us. By far the most endearing in all the Old Testament is that of the shepherd. A truly good shepherd was altogether good towards his sheep, leading them, caring for them, protecting them to the point of risking his own life for every last one of them. The picture painted is that of sheep grazing peacefully to their heart's content in a lush green pasture near a refreshing stream while the shepherd, staff in hand, is ever watchful and vigilant over them. You can find no fault in a good shepherd. Nevertheless, God gets blamed today for just about everything that happens. I read one article this week that started with the line, it's a tough time to be God. It went on to report that up to two thirds of Americans blame God whenever something terrible happens. Let's put that into the metaphor. It would be like saying God is the shepherd who leads his sheep directly to the wolves, or over a cliff, or into a rushing river to be swept away and drowned. Of course, that's not possible. God wanted to shepherd Judah, but his under-shepherds, the kings and the priests and the prophets and the elders, they led the people astray. Not only that, the people, for their part, lagged behind or they went in directions of their own evil desire. So they had bad shepherds over them, but they also had a desire to go in a contrary direction. And so let's pick it up in verse one, where the Lord says, "'Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter "'the sheep of my pasture,' says the Lord. "'Therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel "'against the shepherds who feed my people, "'you have scattered my flock, "'driven them away and not attended to them. "'Behold, I will attend to you "'for the evil of your doings,' says the Lord.'" The shepherds were everyone in positions of leadership, They were to represent God to the people by being good under shepherds, but they were not. They mistreated God's flock for their own selfish gain. God promised to attend to them for the evil of their doings. They're gonna get what they deserve. He would see to it that justice was ultimately done. Now, this is where sometimes people tend to get angry with God or start blaming God. Why allow them to be the under shepherds in the first place? Why let them continue once their abusive character was revealed? Why must we always suffer now and hope for justice to be meted out in some far distant future? The answer to all such questions is really quite simple. It's a one hyphenated word, free will. Free will is the answer to those questions. That's the real culprit. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they sinned freely. No matter your particular theory of exactly how, their sin affects all of their offspring. All evil in the world results from their sin, from mankind being sinners, and from our sins. I don't like that either. But it would be like saying, I mean, this is a terrible illustration, but I I think you'll get it. It'd be like being angry because you're bald. You got that from your parents. What are you going to do? Wish you had different parents? My parents? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) that was really funny. I'm glad that you got that. But um, no, it's the thing. We all understand that we, we inherit characteristics from our parents. Some that we don't want. Some that we don't like. Many that we don't want or like. But it's just the way things are. And so we think, well, wait a minute. Why do I have to inherit sin? Why do I have a sin nature because of what Adam and Eve did? It's, that's the way it works. That's the, the way God set it up. Now, God could have prevented sin only at the cost of nullifying human freedom. Had he done so, creation would have been devoid of the most important thing that there is, and that is love. Since God is love, creation must reflect love. There can be no expression of love, genuine love, real love without choice and free will. I think you know that on a human level. Love can never be forced. It must, also, it must always be free. One theologian put it this way, a creation in which love is the goal must incorporate risk. Whenever someone blames God, they're not being fair. It's it's kind of, you turn it back on them, you say, well, God's not fair. No, if you're blaming God, you're the one that's not being fair and you're not being honest because you don't really want God to violate your free will. You only want him to violate the free will of others or to intervene miraculously according to what you assume is best in every given situation. Blaming God is playing God. God. You can't blame God for something unless you're playing God and saying, I would have done that differently. You know, I, I can't think of one right now, but there's a million television plots and movies where people have an opportunity to change the past or, or do something and it always backfires because whatever you do here has a ripple effect down here and, and it, just, it just ruins everything. And yet, people play God. They say, well, this shouldn't have happened and that should have happened. What do you and I know? So playing God, we don't wanna be doing that. He says, though, in verse three, what is God's answer to this dilemma? He says, I'm gonna gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds. They shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. This phrase, where I have driven them, reminds us that the people were not blameless. It's kind of a a reminder that they deserved what was coming. We've seen the heinous idolatries they refused to repent of. The nation was going to be overthrown and the people exiled as a discipline from the Lord. But it's interesting, these verses overlook a lot of history, 70 years of history to be exact. God goes from talking about them being scattered to them being regathered, overlooking the entire captivity in Babylon. The focus was on God's shepherding and on their pasture in the Holy Land. He says, look, I'm your shepherd. Your under-shepherds blew it. You blew it. But I'm going to continue to be your shepherd and in the future, I'll bring you back to your pasture. And there he would raise up for them good shepherds. We can see ahead in biblical history to God bringing them back 70 years later and giving them good shepherds like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. He wanted to emphasize that he would continue to shepherd them. He was already preparing for their future return to their pasture to Jerusalem and to Israel. And so this, these verses, they emphasize God's heart for his people, including us. As a shepherd, his desire for us always is that we would be fruitful and increase, that we would be fed, we would fear no more, nor be dismayed, and that we would lack nothing. Now again, we have a dilemma. As sheep... We find ourselves hunted by a supernatural roaring lion who is seeking to devour us, it's the devil. We know and are told that wolves will creep in among us, right in the church. Paul and others say there will be wolves in the sense of false teachers who seek to devour sheep. We can find ourselves stripped of this world's goods, persecuted, imprisoned, and martyred. I thought Jesus was our good shepherd. Well, he is. Even as those those things are occurring, even in the very midst of them. We love Psalm 23, the shepherd psalm, don't we? It's one of those passages of scripture that everybody has some relationship to. If you've ever been to a funeral, I think it's a law that it has to be read at funerals. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I mean, Most people can recite it, even non-Christians understand the shepherd psalm. Do you recall that it mentions God will prepare you a table in the presence of your enemies? Do you recall that it says you're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Not the Napa Valley, tasting wine. (laughs) It says you're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a dark and dangerous place. Where are we headed? To the valley of the shadow of death. I didn't know death had a shadow. I'm afraid enough of death. But now it has a shadow that I have to be worried about. It says that God will anoint your head with oil. That sounds good until you realize that what it means is that the sheep has a head wound or an infection and is going to have to be anointed with oil by the shepherd. Christian, you experience the spiritual blessing of being his sheep, even and sometimes especially in the midst of peril in the valley of the shadow of death, in the presence of your enemies, when you are wounded and hurt. We definitely are living in a danger zone, but we are looked after by the Lord, our great shepherd. No evil can separate us from his love. He will gather us home one day. If you and I can't get to the end of Romans chapter um, 7, 8, and realize the life of Paul the Apostle and all the terrible suffering he endured, but then hear him in a doxology of praise saying, what can ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? And then he lists some stuff that just makes your hair curl. You think, wow, you went through that? Christians go through that? How is that even possible? It's possible because you have a great shepherd who walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death, anointing your wounds, setting you a spiritual table in the presence of your enemies. We're just trying to be realistic. Too many Christians, when the trials and the troubles of this world come, they fail and they fall away. When things don't go exactly the way that they determine they should go, then they fall away. Those are the times when you need to be shepherded the most, when you need to walk by faith, And not by sight. Now, in verses 5 through 8, Jesus is the shepherd whose design is to produce ultimate pasture. The Jews would indeed be regathered to their pasture, to the promised land from Babylon. But you may have noted in verse 3, the Lord spoke of regathering them from countries, plural. They're going to Babylon and they're going to be regathered from there, but He says you're going to be regathered from plural countries. It's a clue that these verses are prophetic. And that is exactly what we have before us in verses 5 through 8, a prophecy that looks even beyond our own time. Verse 5, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. The phrase, the days are coming, indicate the coming of the Messiah, He would be from the line of David and he will rule the entire earth. We know because we have the completed Bible that the Messiah, this king, this branch is none other than Jesus Christ. Now one reason we can know it's Jesus is because he is called a branch of righteousness and there are several other places where the Messiah is called a branch. And scholars note that the occurrences in the Old Testament parallel what you can learn about Jesus Christ from the gospel accounts. For example, the reference here in verse 5 portrays the branch as a king. Whatever else it means that he is the branch, he is a king. The gospel of Matthew portrays Jesus Christ as the Jewish king. It gives the proper genealogy that you would need to be king. And, and it's just generally taught by all scholars that the gospel of Matthew presents more than any other gospel, Jesus Christ is your king, the king of the Jews. Zechariah 3.8 refers to the branch. It says, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Not my king, the branch, but my servant, the branch. Scholars see here the gospel of Mark which is a fast-paced gospel written more to a Roman audience. The Romans interested in getting things done and being servants, and it is the gospel of Mark that presents Jesus as the servant. Zechariah 6:12. Speak to him saying thus speaks the Lord of hosts saying behold the man whose name is the branch, not a king, not a servant, a man. Well this has Uh, application in the gospel of Luke, written to a Greek audience. The Greeks always interested in the nature of man and the the perfect man. And so Dr. Luke presents Jesus Christ, not, I mean, as king and as God, but more than any other gospel, as the perfect man. And then finally, Isaiah 4.2 says, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, using words that would describe deity. And this leaves us the Gospel of John, which very definitely presents Jesus as the word of God made flesh, God among us as being divine. And so we know that the person being spoken of here is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse six, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Notice here in this verse, both Judah and Israel will dwell safely. The nation will be regathered to their pasture to the promised land and restored as a sovereign nation. Uh, Sounds a little bit like modern Israel, May 14, 1948, being regathered to their homeland as a sovereign nation. But notice it says she will dwell safely and the Lord will be her righteousness. Those things haven't happened yet. You think Israel is dwelling safely right now? No. And if Prime Minister Netanyahu can ever track down President Obama, we might be able to figure it out. (laughs) Check TV Guide, figure out where he's at. But anyway, um, it was not a political statement, just the reality. Israel's in trouble from one point of view, surrounded by enemies. One article I read was t- uh, indicated that the next 50 days, it's about 10 days ago, so the next 40 days are the most critical 40 days in the history of the nation of Israel. We're on the, I don't know if you and I realize it. I don't think I do because I'm not really doing anything about it except trusting the Lord. We're on the brink of nuclear war or something terrible. If Israel acts unilaterally against Iran, there's no telling what could happen. They may have to in order to survive. How would we feel if Mexico and Canada were building nuclear reactors to destroy us? I know how we felt when the Russians wanted to do some stuff in Cuba back in the 60s. We said, yeah, that's not gonna happen. We'll go to war. We're gonna deal with that. And so Israel, they're being pushed into a corner. I mean, these people in the Middle East, these countries, part of their you know, purpose is to destroy Israel and to kill all Jews. I mean, it's a survival thing for, for the nation of Israel. It's not diplomacy, it's survival. And so it's a very, very critical time in the world and so this is looking to a future beyond our future and what's hopeful about it is that Israel once they're regathered they're not going anywhere this is a final once for all regathering of the Jews to their ancient promised land in which they will never be driven out again and that is where we are at in human history right now man we are so close to the coming of the Lord and of course the rapture could happen any moment verse 7 Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. This is the final, last days regathering of Israel from all over the world. And, And what he's saying is here, it's gonna make the Exodus seem like a rehearsal. It's gonna pale in insignificance compared to what I'm going to do when I bring Jews back from all over the world. Now, we're looking in these verses at what I'm calling the ultimate pasture. As shepherd of Israel, God's design is to bring them into the ultimate pasture of their promised land, but not just in the land as they are today, with Jerusalem being not just the capital of Israel, but the capital of the world in what the Bible describes in Revelation chapter 20 as the 1,000-year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. Millennial meaning millianum, 1,000 years. God saying, there's gonna come a time when I regather you and I shepherd you. And that time is yet future to us. You know the timeline, we've given it to you before. Rapture of the church, resurrection of the church. In some proximity to that, the seven-year great tribulation ends with the return of Jesus Christ from heaven to earth to establish that kingdom, that pasture for Israel. Now, again, thinking this through and putting yourself into the text and into the time, we need to confront the reality of the situation the Jews were facing in the time of these prophecies. They had been led astray by their leaders and by their own evil desires As a result, as a discipline from God, the Babylonians were going to burn Jerusalem to the ground, destroy its temple, and exile the survivors for 70 years. In the very midst of all of that, that's where God says to them, I'm your great shepherd who will care for you, regather you, and bring you back to your pasture both soon and ultimately, He would indeed be preparing them a table in the presence of their enemies, walking with them through the valley of the shadow of death and anointing their wounds with oil. If you want an example of how he was gonna do some of these things on an individual basis, read the book of Daniel. Daniel, a captive, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Captive, exiled in Babylon, and yet they lived the most marvelous spiritual life as God just did amazing and miraculous things through their lives, shepherding them through that difficult time. The world is an evil place. The world is a terrible place because of sin. We want God, well, let me, instead of we, let me say people. People want God to be a planetary policeman, People want him to control the weather so it only benefits them and restrict natural occurrences like tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes so they never harm them. People want God to eradicate all disease or at least make disease discriminating so that no good people or young people are ever affected by them. We don't mind so much. It's it's so silly in light of eternity, and I mean this with reverence, but it's silly in light of eternity to think it's okay for old people to die but not young people. Even today, this morning, somebody was talking to me about a situation. I said, well, how old were they? Oh, they were such and such age. And I thought, well, they were older. And you smile, because you say, okay, they lived. Compared to eternity, they lived, what, 20 more years, 30 more years, 40 more years, 60 more years? And I understand, I get torn up too when infants and children are, are the result of things. I mean, absolutely, it's the way we're wired. But that's what people think. They think, well, God just, God, take care of that. You're omnipotent, take care of that. Make that tornado go in a different direction. And if he doesn't, then they get mad. They blame him. What God does in the midst of times like that, he says, hey, I'm your shepherd. It is my desire to lead you through the present evil world, and it's my design to bring you to ultimate pasture. And then you think, why would I follow a person like that? And the answer is, he's also the one who died on the cross, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep in the midst of this present evil world, then took his life up again in resurrection power and offers us eternal life, abundant life both now and forever. We should follow him because he's the way, the truth, and the life, and because he is our great shepherd And he will do all of those things for us, both now and ultimately. Author and pastor Gregory Boyd wrote, the cross reveals that God's omnipotence is displayed in self-sacrificial love, not sheer might. God conquers sin and the devil, not by a sovereign decree, but by a wise and humble submission to crucifixion. There's so many books and movies where there's a fight between God and the devil. It's like an MMA match, you know? It's like a cage fight between God and the devil. And somehow God squeaks out a victory at the end. I think you understand that God is more powerful than the devil, don't you? When Jesus Christ returns from heaven in his second coming, Michael the archangel just takes a hold of the devil and he chains him up and he throws him in the abyss. It's as simple as that. There's no no big, you know, hbo fight for anybody to watch and have popcorn and stuff like that i mean it just it just happens god is omnipotent absolutely he could do that but you know how he had to defeat the devil because our free will brought sin into this universe he had to defeat the devil by dying on the cross otherwise you and i would be lost forever in trespasses and sins And so God, in his omnipotence, he says, I'm going to be the God-man. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to rise from the dead. All of it's going to take place in kind of a, really kind of a yucky, terrible neighborhood, the world, until I can recreate all things. But that is the power of God unto salvation. And when I get around to blaming God, I just have to remind myself I'm playing God. I just don't know how things would have worked out if a tornado had hit a different town or an earthquake a different country or if that person would have lived instead of the other person. I don't know the ripple effects of all of that. And so I leave that with God and I trust him to shepherd me. And so as we close, the questions really are, are you wounded? in this present evil world. You will be, you have been. Are you wounded? He says, I can anoint your head with oil. I don't know what that means for you, but I know that it's beautiful. Are you surrounded by enemies? You have been or you will be. Then he says, I'll set you a table there with bountiful spiritual blessings. You and I will dine together there in the presence of your enemies. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We'll have a feast. We'll have a field day. Are you walking through the valley of the shadow of death? As Yoda once said, you will be. (laughs) When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need not fear because the Lord is your shepherd. Let's pray.